Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. With me today is uh, Professor Gregory Gauze of Texas A&M University. He's the head of the International Affairs Department in the Bush School of Government and Public Service. And uh, welcome back to the show. Very happy to be here. So there's been a lot happening in the Gulf these days, obviously. Uh, the, the war in Yemen, the, uh, the collapsing oil prices. And uh, how would you assess the extent or the, the success of uh, Saudi foreign policy right now and uh, how Saudis are thinking about their changing place in the region? I mean, I think Saudis see themselves as besieged. Uh, that's not unusual. Almost everyone sees themselves as besieged at one time or another. I'm sure if you talk to Iranians, they would they would see themselves as besieged. But Saudis really do see themselves as besieged because they see the Iranians winning all over the place. They see them winning in Iraq. They see them winning in Syria. They see them winning in Lebanon. They see them trying to establish a foothold in Yemen. Now, I think we can contest you know, all of these interpretations, but that's the way the Saudis see it. Uh, it's interesting that the Saudis picked Yemen as the place to most uh, aggressively fight back. Uh, I, I, let me let me let me bracket that. Bahrain was the place that they most aggressively fought back and successfully. Uh, nobody who has looked at Bahrain thinks that the the popular rising there during the Arab Spring of 2011 was caused by Iran. Uh, you know the international commission headed by uh, Shif Basiouni, who, who looked at the Bahraini case, said the Iranians didn't have anything to do with this. But the Saudis will tell you this was an Iranian effort and we turned it back. So they would see that as a success. But, you know, many other places they see, they see the Iranians as having the upper hand. Uh, and so they feel besieged. So Yemen was the place that they decided to strike back. I think that they chose Yemen both because They've always seen it as, as their backyard, literally their special part of their special preserve, but also because it was the place where they were least likely to directly confront the Iranians. Hmm. You, know, you do something like they're doing in Yemen and Syria, you're fighting the Iranians, maybe even the Russians, directly. Yemen, you're not fighting the Iranians directly. And so I, I think to some extent that's why Yemen was, was the place where they decided to, to get more muscular. So you, you emphasize the, uh, that they feel besieged and they feel surrounded, and yet a lot of the rhetoric that comes out of the government right now is very cocky. It's very assertive, as if they have established a new paradigm for regional collective military action, that, uh, that, that they're really pushing forward in ways that uh, the Saudi foreign policy previously wouldn't have done. How do you square this uh, you know, very positive um, you know, kind of rhetoric with this sense that it's really being driven by a sense of weakness. Well, I, I, there is certainly an assertion of, of, particularly at the beginning of the Yemen adventure, that uh, of what, for one of a better term, I'll call nationalism, even though I don't think nationalism really fits in Saudi Arabia. But there was a rally around the flag uh, sense uh, with the beginning of military operations in Yemen. But I think the rest of this is is not that different from what we've seen in the past. The Saudis have always had this trope of oh let's get a let's get a group together let's get let's let's uh, form an international organization, and then nothing much comes of it. I mean I I just don't see much coming of this 
you know, this grand coalition to fight terrorism that the Saudis announced. Yeah, maybe the, you get some Sudanese uh, uh, units introduced into Yemen, but we're talking very small numbers, and I think that's better understood just as classic mercenary deployment. Uh, I just don't see much happening from this grand rhetoric of, of a, a new alliance to confront terrorism, confront the Iranians. Uh, I, I just don't put much stock in it right now. How, how do you think that uh, Saudi elites currently view the war in Yemen? I mean, do they think they're winning? Do they think there's a possible exit strategy? I know there's more debate about it now, but how do you read that debate? I, I think that... Uh, it's hard to, uh, th there's, there's less of a, an ability to read a debate in Saudi Arabia than even there was maybe before 2011. Uh, I think that there was a bit more freedom for people to talk about things in the Saudi, in, the, in a highly controlled Saudi press before the Arab Spring. Now it's, it's, it's even more circumscribed. So I, I don't get a whole lot of, of sense that there's a lot of criticism publicly voiced of the Yemen adventure. What maybe you're getting is just less enthusiasm about about the Yemen adventure compared to when it started. But, I, I mean, the very fact that there was a Houthi delegation in Riyadh, I, I think it was back in April, uh, is an indication that I think that the, the people who are running the show, uh, and that would, would you know, first and foremost be Mohammed bin Salman, are looking for an exit ramp. Uh, they... I doubt that they want to have a big fight over Sana'a. And if there's some way to negotiate a deal over Sana'a that would lead the Houthis to uh, give up control of Sana'a and but be assured of control uh, up in the north, which is their, you know, their home base, that sounds like the kind of thing that right now the Saudis might be willing to go for. Now, you know, then there's the Saudi military spokesman threatening to have uh, an assault on Sana'a, but to me that's all part of the negotiations. You've been um, uh, quite uh, critical of people who, you know, periodically come out and say the Saudi regime is about to fall, that we should be worried about Saudi stability. Why, why do you think that people are wrong to worry about the stability of the Saudi regime? I think they're wrong for a couple of reasons. One, I, I, I think they're wrong because uh, the notion of fiscal crisis, which uh, people think of when oil prices uh, fall, and, and rightly so, is, is an important issue, but the wolf is not at the door for the Saudis in terms of fiscal crisis. I mean, the wolf is in the neighborhood, but not at the door, right? The Saudis still have, you know, over $550 billion in assets. They're running those assets down. There's no question about that. It's not a long-term strategy to spend down their assets the way they are. Uh, the Saudis also have a very low debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, when the, the Saudis dealt with the similar collapse of oil prices that happened in the mid-80s, uh, they ran their debt up to over 100% of GDP. Uh, and there's no indication, even with the, the, the slight downgrades we've seen in the, in the ratings of Saudi government bonds, there's no indication that the Saudis won't be able to, to sell their government bonds. So I think they actually have plenty of room uh, to deal with, to, to, to put off fiscal crisis. Uh, so I don't, I don't think fiscal crisis is immediate, and, and fiscal crisis can create regime crisis. There's no question about that. The other thing is that uh, uh, I don't see right now the kinds of fissures 
in the ruling family that could lead to more serious uh, uh, problems for the regime. Right? Uh, undoubtedly, the concentration of power in the hands of Mohammed bin Salman uh, has led to uh, disquiet among uh, people in the royal family. Right? This is a, this is a, I was surprised, by the way, that this uh, generational transition has occurred. I, I, I assumed that the, the, the generation of the fathers would just have recreated among their sons this kind of corporate ruling group that, that basically was the Faisal order. Right, the 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 post that the King Faisal set up, and that that basically has ruled Saudi Arabia up until now, right? It was a group of princes. They had important government positions, and it was kind of a collective executive. The king was first among equals, but he had to consult. Well, that's over, of course, because Salman is the last of that bunch. But I assume that at some point, the 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 that generation of the fathers would have recreated that corporate system among their sons. I was wrong. Salman has put enormous power in the hands of his own son, and Mohammed bin Nayef still, the, the crown prince, has enormous amounts of power, although he's not as public a figure these days. That has led to disquiet among, uh, among this vast array of cousins who have basically been cut out of power. But what I don't see happening right now, at least, is any movement among those kind of uh, dispossessed members of the ruling family to uh, form a political block to try to contest this new dispensation. That doesn't, that's not to say it might not happen, but I don't see the evidence of it now. And because of that, I think that the, uh, the Saudis can avoid family crisis and they can avoid fiscal crisis. And if they can avoid those two things, the regional crisis is something that they can deal with, even if they don't always deal with it successfully. So when when you look at uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you you have this you know this vision statement and yeah. these proposals for really quite sweeping and dramatic uh, uh, administrative and fiscal reforms. Uh, do you, do you think those are like a, a serious agenda, or is this uh, part of this intra elite struggle? I think the jury's still out on the whole Vision Twenty Thirty thing. Uh, you are right to point out that Mohammed bin Salman has taken some concrete steps. Uh, in terms of, of lessening the subsidies on water and electricity and thus raising the cost of these items for, for Saudi citizens. Uh, the plan to privatize at least a small bit of Saudi Aramco seems to be serious and seems to be moving forward. But other than that, Vision 2030 is a set of goals. It's not a set of policies. And so I, I would say the jury's still out on that. Uh, and the, the key element of, of the really hard nut here of, of employment, right, is uh, trying to find a way to equalize or at least bring into closer proximity the labor costs of foreign workers with the labor costs of Saudis, right? The Saudi private sector has been a job-creating machine in the last decade. It's just that almost all of those jobs have gone to foreigners. you got to find some way and this is, the, this is the real core of this, and I don't see anything in Vision 2030 about this. Right? The real core of this is how do you make it so that Saudi private sector employers hire more Saudis without destroying the business model that they've built? And I, maybe there's a way to get there, but I don't see it right now in Vision 2030. The other big thing uh, that, that's been discussed and, 
as, as I recall, it's not even an element of Vision 2030, but it's been discussed as part of the, the, the changes, is the introduction of a value-added tax, right? And this is something that is being discussed GCC-wide. Uh, that, that would be a big change. Now, Mohammed bin Salman has, has been very explicit. He says there's going to be no income tax in Saudi Arabia, right? Your income, your earnings will not be taxed. But if you're going to develop a, a, an alternative fiscal structure to a complete reliance on oil revenues, you got to tax something. So the VAT, if they can implement that, would be, I think, probably the biggest change in Saudi Arabia in the way Saudi Arabia is governed since the oil boom. But again, right now it's plans. We'll see, we'll see what happens. There's one last question. Uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the the last few years has been the uh, much closer uh, G, uh, GCC cohesion, especially the Saudi-Emirati uh, alliance, which has not always been so cordial. Um, and, uh, you know, since uh, 2013, even Qatar has been more integrated into this. Um, yeah, how do you explain this? And do you think it's likely to last beyond this moment? Is this a, now a... a more or less a permanent feature of regional politics, or was it just a creature of a particular moment and we'll soon be back to the bickering and uh, divided GCC that we came to know so well? Right. I think that, that the, the extent of cohesion within the GCC is uh, directly proportional to the seriousness of the crises faced by the ruling regimes. So when things are kind of smooth, uh, there's plenty of room to, to uh, indulge in the, in the old rivalries over borders and the, the smaller states wanting to have a more independent position from the Saudis. Uh, I think when there's a perception that things are really serious, the GCC comes together. I think we saw that in 1990 with the, with the invasion of uh, Kuwait, and I think we see it in 2011. And then the Qataris, uh, the Qataris were the outliers for a bit, and then they were brought in through a combination of, of threats and, and promises. And it's because I think the GCC states from, the, from 2011 saw you know, real crises, the combination of the prospect of popular upheaval within with the, the, the regional crises, crisis around them. And so to me, this fits the pattern. And that means that as things settle down, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see, uh, you know, members go off the reservation. And, and it would be a mistake for us to overestimate the policy coherence of the GCC even now, right? To the extent that, that you know, common GCC policy is very much anti-Iranian focused, yeah, the, the Emiratis are on board, the Bahrainis are, of course, on board, but, you know, the Omanis... Are you know the Omanis basically help midwife the U.S.-Iranian deal, and the Kuwaitis have their own uh, uh, desire to have good relations with with the Iranians because their own Shia population is so well integrated into the political system. All right, well, great, thanks, uh, Greg Gauss, Texas A&M University. Uh, thanks for uh, joining the podcast. My pleasure.